Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus. This is increment 126. And we'll be considering for this increment and possibly the one to follow, Jesus as the source of age-abiding salvation. That's a phrase that comes from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. We are fully engaged in Hebrews 5 now. So we'll be going once again to Hebrews 5, 1. And considering Jesus, the Son of God, as our great archpriest. So we'll begin with prayer. And Father, we thank you for providing this open door, which no man can shut. And we pass through that open door and take advantage of the opportunity to gaze into your word. And we pray that you'll open the eyes of our understanding, that we might receive insight, that we might receive enlightenment, and that we might be enabled to live a life that's empowered by your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words in this homily called Hebrews. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, the Son of God, is your great arch priest. This is really what the PT is saying, the teaching pastor who wrote this homily, and it's what I'm saying. Let me prove it with scripture, is what he said. It's what I'm saying, too. And with reason that he is the apostle and the archpriest of our confession, as Hebrews 3.1 puts it. And that means that the Son of God, whom we acknowledged in our confession to be Jesus, is the apostle, as he's called in Hebrews 3.1, the only time he's called that in all of Scripture. Apostle meaning one commissioned or sent on a mission. He is the apostle sent by God for the explicit purpose that the world would be saved through him in John 3.17. And in John 12, 47, Jesus said, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. His mission was successful, and he acknowledged that successful mission himself from the cross, saying, Tetelestai, one of the meanings for which is mission accomplished. Sent to save the world, mission accomplished. Again, John 3:17 connecting with John 19.30 and John 12.47. And we'll be, incidentally, going to the Gospel of John a couple times during the next couple of increments. We came to Hebrews through a study of John, so that's natural to happen. He is also called the great archpriest who is appointed by God to act in behalf of you and me to save you and me to the maximum possible degree. And that's why Hebrews 7.25 says he ever lives to make intercession for us in order to save us to the uttermost, to the max, we could say, to the maximum degree. And that maximum degree of salvation is when we finally receive a body of glory, an immortal and incorruptible body, which is like his own body of glory, according to Philippians 3.20 and 21. So he's a great archpriest appointed by God to act in behalf of human beings, as it says, to their benefit. And he has offered one sacrifice forever. It's an offering that is so efficacious and one so significant as to be the antitype for all of the hundreds and thousands and even millions of sacrifices and offerings presented to God in behalf of Israel by all the priests and all the archpriests of the order of Aaron over the course of many centuries. They were all a type 
and Jesus is the antitype or the corresponding fulfillment to all of those sacrifices. Therefore, his offering of himself once and for all for the sins of not only Israel but for the whole world is the antitype or the fulfillment of the types of all the sacrifices offered under the order of Aaron, the great archpriest of the old order, and also called the Levitical priesthood, named after Levi, the grandson of Aaron, showing that there is a sequence or succession of priests depending on genealogy, heredity, and descent. Jesus is a different kind of archpriest, as we're going to find out. Hebrews 5.1 says every archpriest, and we're seeing in Hebrews, the law of comparison and contrast, where the one messianic or Messiah priest, the one and the unique great archpriest, Jesus Christ, is both compared and contrasted with every archpriest selected from human beings that is in the old order, the order of Aaron, who is the brother of Moses and the first archpriest of Israel. Every archpriest selected from human beings is appointed to act on behalf of human beings, and that means to their benefit, it's a dative of advantage here, to the benefit of human beings in things that pertain to God pertaining to God, or with reference to God. And that is to offer gifts and offerings for sins. That's the main function of the priest. These gifts and offerings for sins are, again, types for the one and only all-comprehensive antitype of the once-and-for-all and forever sacrifice for sins, offered by the unique messianic archpriest, Jesus, the Son of God, whom we're going to learn is an archpriest like Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, a kind of mystical and enigmatic person that we only meet once in the Old Testament, and he's referred to a second time in the Old Testament, and that's Psalm 110.4 harking back to Genesis 14, 17 to 20, where he appeared or came out to meet Abraham in the Valley of the Kings after Abraham's rescue of the hostages, his family, from a terrorist band or a group of terrorists. And Abraham did this with 318 trained commandos under his command, and secured a victory, a saving victory. Melchizedek then came out of seemingly nowhere, and he had bread and wine with him, offering bread and wine, therefore a type of Christ. And it says that Abraham tithed the spoils of that war to Melchizedek, and the lesser tithes to the greater. We're going to find out all these comparisons. There's pretty extensive comparison and contrast that's going to extend into the central section of Hebrews. And once again, I want you to get kind of a look at that. We are standing at a kind of outlook to view the horizon of the whole of Hebrews. And the whole of Hebrews involves a central section, which is a circle within a circle or concentric circles, a circle within a circle within a circle. That's the central section of Hebrews 7 one to 1018. That's where we're going to get to the heart of the matter. And at the center of the center of that central section is Jesus Christ and him crucified, which is the whole heart and soul and beating heart of all of scripture. The same is true in Romans, as we've seen, Romans 8, 31 and 32, becoming the center of the center of the center of Romans, where the scripture says, if God is for us, who can be against us, and he who did not spare his only son, but freely gave him over on behalf of us all, will he not with him give us freely all things? Romans eight thirty one to 32. So similarly, 
at the heart of Hebrews and at the heart of the heart is Jesus Christ and him crucified as having offered one sacrifice for sins forever, unrepeatable, then sat down at the right hand of the Father. For following the cross was the exaltation to the throne where he's seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens and where he serves beyond the veil, the torn veil, in the holy of holies of heaven as our great archpriest. That's good news and good news for all believers especially. So pertaining to God in verse 1 of chapter 5 means with reference to God. Therefore, the priesthood had a horizontal orientation. It was on behalf of people, that's horizontally, but it was pertaining to God or with reference to God, that's vertically. And so the cross represents the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which was to the benefit of all humanity both ways, and it was oriented to the Father, God the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ offered himself without spot to God. That's the vertical orientation in Hebrews 9.14. He presented himself as the offering. The offerer is the offering. The priest is the lamb that was offered. Jesus Christ is everything in our salvation. So pertaining to God means with reference to God. The gifts and offerings that the priest offers are, once again, types for the one and only, all-comprehensive antitype of the once and for all and forever sacrifice for sins offered by the unique messianic archpriest, Jesus the Son of God. So continuing with every priest, we have verse 2. And who is able, that's every priest, is able to deal gently with the ignorant and those who are led astray, since he himself experiences weakness in many ways. And because of this weakness, which sometimes leads to sin, not in Jesus' case, but in the case of every other archpriest, just as he offers sacrifice for the sins of the people, he must also do so for himself. So there we have a comparison and contrast with Jesus, the unique high priest. Jesus is also able to deal gently with those who come to him. He doesn't judge people who come and acknowledge sins. He does not treat us harshly. He treats us with compassion, with mercy because of his faithfulness. And he also understands our weakness, even though his weakness, and it even says in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, he was crucified in weakness. But in his weakness, he never resorted to sin. And therefore, he's able to assist us in our temptations, in our trials. He's able to assist us to resist sin and the consequences of sin, which are always, in one way or another, related to death. So, Every archpriest is able to deal gently with the ignorant, those who are led astray, since he himself experiences weakness in many ways. Because of this, every archpriest is still the subject under the Levitical order. His weakness leads to sin, so as he offers sacrifices for the sins of the people, meaning Israel, he must also do so for himself. There's a contrast. Jesus did not have to offer sacrifice for himself because he knew no sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God or that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, which blends splendidly with Hebrews 4.15, for he was tested in every way as we are and yet without sin. The next point is very important. And goes to back to Hebrews two nine, which is an allusion to Psalm eight four through six, and it has to do with the word honor, as we've seen before. It has to do with the word honor. The transliteration of that looks like our word time, but it's really T I M eta E would be pronounced time in the Greek time. Honor. Time is one of the words used in Hebrews 2.9, as well as it's used here. 
in four, or rather five, four, five, four. Time, honor. And so this harks back to Hebrews 2.9 where it says that he, far from God, not by the grace of God, but far from God, experienced death for every person. That's every person in all of time without exception. He tasted death, which means he experienced death. What is death? The death that he experienced was not only a physical death on the cross, but it was the absolute death, which is the wages of sin. Hebrews 2.9 relates to Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. He experienced death, that is, the wages of sin, for everyone, for all people. And so this same person who experienced death for all people, we see what? Crowned with glory and honor. Time, honor. Honor here in Hebrews 5.4 is the same word used in Hebrews 2.9. The honor with which Jesus Christ is crowned on the cross, he was crowned with a crown of thorns. In resurrection and ascension and exaltation, he's crowned with glory and with honor. The glory with which he's crowned is the glory of a king the honor with which he's crowned is the honor of a priest, namely the great archpriest after the order of or like Melchizedek. So it says in verse 4, and no one takes this honor on himself. The honor of archpriesthood, you don't take it to yourself. It's not something you decide you're going to be. And no one takes this honor on himself. That goes for every archpriest of the Aaronic order, but it also goes for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not take this honor to himself. He did not promote himself. He humbled himself before the Father, and the Father exalted him. He humbled himself by obedience even to the extent of the cross, and the Father exalted him. The key to living itself is humility. He did not promote himself is another way to put this. The one who is the great archpriest did not promote himself. Aaron didn't promote himself. God appointed him, the brother of Moses, to be an archpriest. Same with all the archpriests. They do not promote themselves. God promotes them. One of the keys to life and living and effective living, of course, is knowing in Psalm 74, 75, verses 5 and 6, that promotion comes from the Lord. It doesn't come to the east or the west. It doesn't come horizontally. It doesn't come because of self-promotion. The Lord is the promoter. No one takes this honor, Time, on himself, but is called by God. Just as Aaron was. Every archpriest, just as Aaron. Similarly, now here we're getting into the unique priesthood of Jesus Christ. Similarly, note the presence of the law of similarity here. The Messiah did not glorify himself. And again, the word doxazo here has the nuance of meaning called promote. The Messiah did not promote himself to be archpriest. On the contrary, the one, capital O-N-E, who said to him did the promoting by saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The one who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That was also cited back in Hebrews 1.5. It's a quotation of Psalm 2.7. The one who said to the Messiah, Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And incidentally, that is the formula that's recited when a king takes the throne. You are my son, says the king 
Today I have begotten you, meaning today I have crowned you with the glory of being a king. We've seen that before. We'll see it again. It needs explanation, especially since Melchizedek was not only a priest but also a king. So who promoted Jesus Christ? The one who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so the pivot, I call it, on which this whole argument of Hebrews turns, the whole argument turns right here in 5b, that's Hebrews 5, 5b, the second part, into 5, 6. This is the pivot on which the whole argument of Hebrews turns right here. The one who said to him, Messiah Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you, a quote of Psalm 2-7, which we've also seen in Hebrews 1-5, also said, says verse 6, in another place, and we know that other place is Psalm 110-4, you are a priest for the age just like Melchizedek. So here's the accusation that came to these recipients of Hebrews. You guys dissociated yourselves from the temple and the practices of offering animal sacrifices. When you dissociated yourselves from those practices of Judaism, you dissociated yourself from the high priest. You don't have a high priest, you Christians who confess Jesus as the Son of God. And because you don't have a high priest, you don't have someone who can offer sacrifices for you on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Therefore, you are cut off not only from the people called Israel, but you are cut off from forgiveness and perhaps even life and under the threat of divine vengeance. That was the accusation that came to these recipients of this letter. They did not know that Jesus was their archpriest. They literally believed, well, we don't have an archpriest. What do we do? We've stepped out here into this wilderness. Now we don't have an archpriest, and we're being accused, not just by their former associates. The accusation came from the accuser of the brethren, also known as Satan, Diabolos, the accuser. So Hebrews was written to address that accusation and answer it by saying, listen, your confession is that Jesus is the Son of God. Hold fast to that confession. Don't compromise it by going back and offering those temple sacrifices again. Hold fast to that confession because I have something to tell you. The one who said to Jesus, you are my son, also said to him, you are a priest. Not only a priest until you die, you're a priest forever, a priest for the age like Melchizedek. You not only have an archpriest, therefore, says this pastor teacher who's concerned for these Christians, you not only have a great archpriest, you have one who's passed through the heavens, and he's one like Melchizedek, who's also a king. You have a superior archpriest than those who are accusing you of having no archpriest. Not only that, he offered once and for all a sacrifice for all sins forever, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So this was the greatest possible incentive for a group of people who were beginning to be discouraged under the accusation that they were somehow cut off from God's favor because they didn't have any longer an archpriest after the order of Aaron. Oh, they didn't, but they had an archpriest after the order of Melchizedek who offered a sacrifice infinitely greater. That's the whole argument of Hebrews, and it turns right here. Okay, the first four chapters we've spent teaching you that, of course, the name above all names of the Son who is exalted above angels and exalted above Moses and is exalted above Aaron, his name is Jesus. He's the Son of God. You got that. Now I'm telling you, and from now on, that he is a priest, your archpriest. Psalm 110.4 is therefore quoted here, which is in the Septuagint translation of the Greek, is 109.4, so it's a direct quote of the Septuagint. 
So Jesus, the son of their, or our, also confession, is the great archpriest of their and our confession, Hebrews 3.1. That means that Jesus, the son of God, which is the very confession which dissociated them originally from the temple and its priesthood and sacrifices in the old Jerusalem, is the same declaration that associates them, connects them with a great archpriest who surpasses the archpriests of the Aaronic order, both in prestige and duration. For Jesus, the Son of God, is the priest for the age, as it says in the scripture, like Melchizedek, priest for the age. And as we've explained recently, the word age there should be capitalized because it's dealing with an age that began with the Christ event, with his incarnation and his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, and that's an age that never ends. The present evil age has an end. Evil has to end because evil doesn't even have a real essential existence. And I'm optimistic when I look around and see all the evils in the world today because evil exists only for the purpose that a greater good can come. So if great evil exists, it's only because God is planning a greater good to come. Joseph knew this, who was a type of Christ, when he said to his brothers, you meant your betrayal of me, your selling of me into slavery. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good that he may preserve many lives, save many. So I'm very optimistic when I look around and see all the evils of our time because great evils exist precisely for the purpose that a greater good can emerge from them by God. And that's because Jesus Christ is our great archpriest. Not only that, he carries everything that happens in history to a redemptive conclusion. He upholds all things by the word of his power. You have no reason whatsoever to be pessimistic, except if you want to be a pessimist for evil, because evil has an end. So Jesus, the Son of God, is called priest for the age, and that means for the endless age. He's like Melchizedek. Not that Melchizedek was a priest for the age, but Melchizedek was a priest and a king. So this again quotes, once again, he builds his case on scripture, this one from Psalm 110.4. All through the New Testament, almost every scripture writer either alluded to or quoted Psalm 110.1 and related it to Jesus Christ in his resurrection and ascension. For there, they always said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Always referred to Jesus. None of the New Testament writers, none of the 27 documents of the New Testament referred to Psalm 110.4 in relation to him being a priest also, except for Hebrews. That's what makes this book unique. And so, the writer has much more to say about this priesthood, but not quite yet. The next verse is also very revealing. I'm going to be doing an awful lot of thinking about this and reflecting about Hebrews 5, 7, because it looks simpler than it is. There's a lot more to every verse in Hebrews than you've possibly imagined, which is why we've spent 125 hours on it so far, and we're only in the fifth chapter. There's a lot more to the word of God than meets the eye. There's a lot more to the interpretation of Hebrews than comes from commentaries. And I respect and regard very highly the commentaries I'm reading right now in Hebrews, four or five of them, maybe five or six of them actually. But my final insights come from a combination of that study and then what the Holy Spirit is saying, which has to be determined over the course of looking at a whole lot of scriptures. So notice in Hebrews 5.7, and I've quoted it this way. I've translated it this way for a reason now. It says, in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus Christ, the priest who is like Melchizedek, 
in the days of his flesh means during his earthly life. Remember, before the days of his flesh, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's God Almighty. He's the Word who is God. He always preexisted his own flesh or his own becoming flesh. In the days of his flesh, that is during his earthly life, he offered both prayerful entreaties and supplications. Two words for prayer. One of them is entreaties, and the other is supplications, or making application for need. Both of these have to do with the dependence upon the one praying and the orientation to God who can be re- who is reliable. So in the days of his flesh, that is, during his earthly life, Jesus offered both prayerful entreaties and supplications. Now, interestingly, the word for offered here is a priestly term. It's the same word used when priests offer sacrifices. And so he offered prayers and entreaties, or entreaties and supplications, petitions and requests, we could say. He offered them. And so the offering of these very prayers was already a priestly act. So the, I would ask this question, was Jesus Christ considered a great archpriest even in the days of his flesh before the cross? Well, here it's evidently the case, but we'd have to make a much stronger case than that. In the days of his flesh, that is, during his earthly life, he offered both prayerful entreaties and supplications with a strong outcry and tears. That means sometimes he actually prayed with a strong outcry, and with tears to the one, again, capital O-N-E, the one who was able to save him out from the realm of death. Please notice how that translation comes through. Out from the realm of death. He's not praying that God would save him from the death of the cross. He prays that God will save him out from the realm of the dead or out from the realm of death. So the same one, capital O-N-E here in verse 7, is the one in 5, 4 through 6 who said of him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a priest forever. So in the days of his flesh, he offered both prayerful entreaties and supplications. And again, the offering of these was already a priestly act with a strong outcry and tears to the one who was able to save him out from the realm of death and was heard. He was heard. That means God answered that prayer because of his And here's the meaning of that word, reverential obedience. And so the active participle, nominative, masculine, singular form of the word prospero, which is translated to offer here in 5.7, has a priestly meaning. Various, and you'll see that in print, the word prospero, various forms of the word prospero, P-R-O-S-P-H-E-R-O, are found in Hebrews. In other words, the words used in various forms in many places, including Hebrews 5.1, back there, 11, and 12, and Hebrews 11.4 and 17. You get the idea that's kind of a key term, and it's a priestly term. The related word ana pharaoh, A-N-A-P-H-E-R-O, which means to offer up, is also a priestly term, and it's found in Hebrews 7.27 and Hebrews 9.28, having to do with him offering a once and for all sacrifice. In Hebrews 13.15, ana pharaoh, which means, again, to offer up, is used in the phrase translated a sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of lips that acknowledge God's name. 
So we as a priesthood also offer sacrifices, sacrifices of praise and prayer. So when Jesus prayed, he prayed as a priestly action, acting on behalf of or to the benefit of human beings pertaining to God. For Jesus in the days of his flesh to offer prospero, prayerful entreaties and supplications to the one who was omnipotent and able to save him out from the realm of death means that Jesus was evidently already operational in a priestly act during the course of his life on earth. And this I'm saying against those who say he only became a priest after his death. Well, we've got to take a look at these things and see the whole argument. We may suppose then that prayerfulness was also an ongoing action and act and habit, we could even say, throughout Jesus' life, and that priestly prayerfulness was part of his act, at least from the time of his submission to baptism by John, after which it says he began his ministry. John baptized him, then his ministry began in Luke 3.23. So that Jesus offered prayerful entreaties and supplications, both being the kind of prayers that emphasize the need of the supplicant and his dependence on the one to whom he prays, shows the humanity and even the weakness of Jesus during his earthly life and during the course of the fulfillment of his mission. Now, if theologians are correct, in their affirmation that John 17, for example, and I've read many theologians and many commentators over the course of the past few years, 40 years, that John 17 consisted of Jesus' high priestly prayer, they say. It was the prayer of the high priest to the Father. If that's true, then we'd have to assume that his prayerfulness to the one who was able to deliver him out of the realm of death was not merely a request that he be delivered from death, but that all of humankind would be delivered from death. Let me show you what I mean. If you want to take the time to read this on your own, and I don't have time to do that in this increment, John chapter 11 and verse 35 through 45, the event was Lazarus having been buried after dying, having been buried four days. In John 11.35, Jesus wept. So through tears, it says that he prayed with what? Tears and a great outcry. Jesus, through tears, John eleven thirty five, and while being deeply moved again, in John eleven thirty eight, as he often was, with compassion for the human condition, approached Lazarus' tomb. He ordered the stone to be removed, the gigantic disc that covered the sepulcher. In John eleven thirty nine and 41a. And then he lifted up his eyes, as he did in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 1, and said out loud, we could almost say with an outcry, because there was a big crowd there. He said out loud, Father, I thank you that you heard me. That's John eleven forty one b And that indicated that the Father heard Jesus in what must have been a silent prayer that he already uttered to his father. He already knew that Lazarus was going to be delivered from the realm of death because Jesus asked the father, who is the one who is able to save him out from the realm of the dead. So you can picture Jesus silently asking his father to do this. 
And so he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard. You already heard my silent prayer, but there's a crowd of people around here, and I want them to believe that you sent me. I'm the apostle of the confession. I'm the one you sent. Because I want this whole big crowd to believe that I sent you, I'm going to pray out loud now through tears and with an outcry. So, Father, I thank you that you heard me. Then he added, I know that you always hear me. Always. So, when you say there was a prayer that he didn't, that the Father didn't hear, I got a problem with that because Jesus said, You always hear me. But because of this crowd standing around, he says, I say this aloud in order that they would believe that you sent me. Then in verse 42, he said with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out here. Then the dead man came out, says 1144. And in John 1145, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary in a kind of a funeral visitation, awake we could say, Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, the sister of Lazarus, in her grief, saw what Jesus did and believed. Now, here we have the feature of an outcry. We have the feature of tears. We have someone delivered out from the realm of the dead, but it's not Jesus. Would Jesus need to be saved out from the realm of the dead? Yes. Did Jesus pray to be saved out from the realm of the dead? Yes. Did he pray to be spared the death of the cross? No, because his prayer all in one breath was, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He did not shrink from the death of the cross, nor did he ask the Father to spare him that death But he did ask from the cross, as we're going to find out, from the cross, he prayed, save your darling, which means your only beloved, from the lion's mouth. Prayed that from the cross, which means after tasting death or experiencing death for everyone, he remained, he died physically and entered into the realm of the dead and God the Father did hear him and saved him from the realm of the dead by a little act called resurrection. That, in other words, there's a connection between Hebrews 5.7 and Hebrews 13.20. So in the episode in John's Gospel, Jesus' prayer was heard. It was prayed out loud and through tears. He prayed with tears. He prayed to the one who was able to save him out of the realm of the dead. And he prayed that he would save Lazarus out from the realm of the dead. And Lazarus is just a kind of a forecast of what's going to happen to everyone. In John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus said... In that day, many or all will be raised from the dead. Some will be raised up to the judgment, meaning the judgment of their justification, and others right directly to eternal life, John 5, 28 and 29. Both of those verses are very positive. Lazarus was sort of a forecast of that. And Lazarus did not rise from the dead to receive his glorified body. He was just raised from the dead to experience the rest of his life in a body that was still about to die. So he was just a kind of a type of what is going to happen in the general resurrection. So when Jesus commanded the dead man, Lazarus, to come out of the realm of the dead, Lazarus did come out of the realm of the dead. In that case, Jesus prayed to the one who was able to save him, that is, Jesus, from the realm of the dead, and he was heard. But in that case, it was not Jesus himself who was saved from the realm of the dead, at least that time. It was Lazarus, his dear friend. We may assume that he was always heard by the Father, always heard by the Father, 
because earlier Jesus said of his relationship to his father, I always do the things that please him. I always do the things that please him. John 8, 29. And in John, 1 John, here's the key for our prayer, 1 John 5, 14, this is the basis for the outspoken confidence that we have toward him. Outspoken confidence is another one of those catchwords, and this has an article, hey, which means the, and then P-A-R-R-E-S-I-A, parousia, that means outspokenness, confident and bold outspokenness. It means you have freedom of speech and you use it. You're not afraid. You're not cowed. You're not a coward because of people who are going to cancel you or troll you or dox you or some otherwise malign and shame you. You're not afraid. Hey, parousia, parousia. We have outspokenness. This is the basis for our outspoken confidence. It's used not only in 1 John 5.14, but in Hebrews 3.6, 4.16, and 10.35. Our outspoken confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask him, Anything, anything, according to his will, there's the key, according to his will, he hears us. And then in verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we will have what we've asked him for, confidence in prayer. So when we pray, and this is the word we've used before, If we're pre-moved in our prayer by Jesus, our prayers will most certainly be heard. In Hebrews 5, 7, Jesus was heard when he offered prayers of entreaty and supplication to God, his eternal Father. And sometimes, to reveal his weakness, even as our priest, he prayed with a strong outcry and even with tears. And he was heard because of his reverent obedience. Now, this is going to be laying a track or laying tracks for the next increment. Because of his reverent obedience is what is the reason here given in Hebrews 5.7. That's another way of saying that Jesus was heard or that God answered his prayer because he always did things or the things that pleased his father even to the extent of allowing himself to be lifted up on the cross in John 8:28 and John 12:32 and John 3:14 if i'm lifted up i will draw all to myself not some i will drag everybody to myself if i'm lifted up and the prince of this world will be defeated as i'm lifted up So he did the things that pleased his father, even to the extent of allowing himself to be lifted up, that is, as a sacrifice on the cross, as we'll be explaining down the road. In other words, he did all the things that pleased his father to the extent of the death of the cross. It is also to say here that Jesus trusted his father. I always do the things that please him means I always trust him. Because as Hebrews 11.6 says, it's impossible to please God without faith. And that includes without trusting him. So it's also true to say that Jesus trusted his father, and even says so in Isaiah 8.17, because it's impossible to please God without faith in Hebrews 11.6. There never was a time when Jesus was not heard by his father. Even when he prayed in Gethsemane, because his prayer was not ultimately for the father to spare him from drinking the cup of death for every person. His prayer was ultimately for the Father's will to be done. 
despite Jesus' natural human desire to be spared the horror of experiencing the wages of sin as the sinless Son of God for all human beings. And to experience that wages of sin as the sinless Son of God while cast away from God and very far from Him, as Hebrews 2.9 says, and as Psalm 22.1 and following illustrates. Far away from God. Now, in closing this increment and anticipating the next increment, which would be increment 127, Jesus actually did pray Not in Gethsemane, but in Golgotha, on the cross itself, to be delivered out of the realm of death. While impaled to the cross, if we assume that he was, that he had all of Psalm 22 in his mind, and it's properly to be assumed that he did, since he cried out, my God, my God. Why have you abandoned me? That he was actually experiencing that abandonment, which was a tasting of the wages of sin. On Golgotha, while impaled to the cross, the scripture says, first of all, and this is an insight that needs to be developed, and I hope the Lord gives me time and breath to develop it. He could not preserve his own life. He is the one who could not preserve his own life. That's Psalm twenty-two, twenty-nine, And that's also in the Septuagint, Psalm 21, 30. In Mark 15, 31, those who were mocking him at the foot of the cross said, he saved others, he can't even save himself. And that's true. He could not save himself because he came to fulfill a mission that was designed to save the world, not himself. Not to judge the world, but to receive the world's judgment. And so he could not save his own life. So therefore, after he died, he could not save his own life. The father had to save him out from the realm of death, as it were. And so what did he pray? According to Psalm 22, again, this time in verse 21, he says, save your darling. And darling here simply means your uniquely beloved one. Your uniquely beloved one, meaning me, save me, he said. From the lion's mouth. Again, that's Psalm twenty-two, twenty-one, which is the Septuagint of twenty-one, twenty-two. The lion's mouth, therefore, is a metaphor for the realm of death. In Hebrews thirteen, twenty, the God of peace brought up from the realm of the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus, our Lord. He was heard when he prayed from the cross with a great outcry and tears. Save your beloved one, me, from the lion's mouth. He was heard because the Bible tells us in Hebrews thirteen twenty that the God of peace, his father, led him up, brought him up from the dead. That's the realm of the dead. The great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus our Lord. And why did he do it? On account of the blood of the everlasting covenant. The death of Jesus Christ was the blood that ratified the new covenant by which all would come to know God. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And so the father, recognizing the value of the son's sacrifice, led him up from the realm of of the dead. His resurrection, in other words, was the Father's final acknowledgement 
that his sacrifice for all sins, for all time, was acceptable and satisfactory to the Father. It was an expiation that fulfilled a propitiation. So in closing, the God of peace heard the Son when he prayed to be delivered from death. Again, this ought to be clear. Jesus did not pray to be spared from experiencing death, the wages of sin, for every human being. He didn't ask for that. He did pray to the one who was able to save him from the realm of the dead to be saved out of the realm of the dead after he had entered into it. And he was heard because of his reverent obedience, which led him, and I'm going to close with this, and listen very carefully to this, because this is an insight that 80% of the church today in America and across the world has missed, or if they've heard it, they've rejected it to their own, well, not to their own benefit, let's say that. He did, he was heard because of his what? Reverent obedience. That obedience, according to Romans, at one of the high points in Romans, led him to and through the death of the cross, also Philippians 2.8. And therefore, that obedience to his Father's will led to many being made righteous in Romans 5.19. And those many who were made righteous by his obedience, are the same group of people that he calls the all who were given justification and life in Romans 5, 18 to 19. And so he was heard because of his obedience. What kind of obedience? The obedience that led him to the extent of the death of the cross. The obedience that led to the making righteous of all of humanity by the one act of obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, who is the single inclusive representative for all humankind. That'll set us up to understand Hebrews 5.9 when we get to it. The all-inclusive representative, the single inclusive representative for all humankind. There were only two that ever lived, Adam and Christ. Adam included all of humanity in death, Christ includes all of humanity in life. In Christ, all will be made alive. That's the gospel. If you don't have that, you don't have the gospel. And I don't care if you call it the full gospel, you don't have the gospel. And you're preaching an incomplete message that takes away the hope of millions of people today because you don't understand and you don't communicate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for all. That's a shame. Now, that's a shame. So, here we have it. This led Jesus, this obedience, was to the Father's will. My will, not my will be done, yours be done, was his prayer that was heard. What was the Father's will? The Father is called God our Savior in 1 Timothy 2.3. You know what his will is? To save all mankind in verse 4. So he was obedient to the Father's will, which was a universally saving will. And his obedience led to the salvation of all, the justification and life of all. So we're going to ask the question, how do you square or reconcile this contradiction. In Romans 5.18, it says justification and life for everyone, without exception. But how do you square that with age-abiding salvation for those who obey him? How do you make sense out of that? How is there no contradiction between he justifies all and then he saves those who obey him. 
What is that? How do you square those two? How, and that's the next, that's the next increment. How do we square, or as we could say, how do we reconcile the apparent contradiction in the evidently contrasting phrases, justification and life for everyone, Romans 5.18, how do you reconcile that with the phrase age-abiding salvation for those who obey him in Hebrews 5.9? How do you square it? Well, we have the answer, and it's not simple. It's complex, and it involves complex doctrine, but we'll hit it in the next increment. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to get into the complexities of your word as well as the simple message of it. We pray that everything that we do today in this message and all that we've done will result in a clearer view of Jesus, that we may see him who is crowned not only with the glory of being your son and the great king, but with the honor of being our great arch priest. May this have the same impact in the 21st century as this homily must certainly have had in the first century. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.